0: Peace, we Welcome back to the Alcos Mainstream Podcast. Today, we travel to London to talk with someone who has seen the evolution of the European tech ecosystem up close. We discuss the rise of Europe with Isomer Capital's co-founder and managing partner, Joe Shorji. Isomer is a pan-European fund of funds, co-investment, and secondaries platform with almost 400 million euros of AUM. They've invested in 70 VC funds, including the likes of Seedcamp, Hoxton Ventures, Atlantic Labs, and leading European companies like SoRare. Refurbed, Zenjob, and many more. Joe has a fascinating perspective on Europe's tech ecosystem on a number of dimensions. He's an American who moved to Europe in the late 1990s to work in tech before moving to the allocator and investor side. He worked as an investment consultant at Cambridge Associates, where he advised institutional investors in Europe and MENA on strategy, planning, and implementation of investment portfolios that amounted to over $2 billion of capital across 75 transactions in private markets. He was then a Managing Director at Pomona Capital in Europe, where he focused on secondaries, fund investing, and co-investments, which paved the way for him to found Isomer as one of the early institutional pan-European fund of funds based in Europe. Joe and I had a rich conversation about the past, present, and future of the European tech ecosystem. We discussed why Europe is a great place to invest right now, the biggest opportunities in the ecosystem, why local funds will still win in their respective regions at pre-seed and seed, why there are different skill sets that both investors and founders need to have to succeed in Europe, and why more institutional investors should be allocating to European venture. Thanks, Joe, for coming on the Alcos Mainstream podcast to share your wisdom and experiences about European venture.'
1: We're going mainstream.
0: Joe, welcome to the Alcos Mainstream Podcast. Thanks, Michael. What a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. You have such a fascinating perspective on European venture, both as someone who's been doing it for a long time, but also as someone who's an American living in London, Europe. So I want to start there. What's it like to be an American in Europe, particularly in the tech ecosystem?
1: Well, the honest answer is I probably don't know anymore. I've been here so long that I don't think of it as one or the other anymore. I, I just try to observe and learn from the best. But interesting to note that there are actually a lot of Americans in the tech ecosystem, a surprising number. And again, they don't necessarily identify, oh, hey, hi, how do you do? I'm American. But something about entrepreneurial flair and they've already gone out to live somewhere else and do something different which maybe tends to lead to venture capital and entrepreneurship. My experience is people are the same everywhere in the sense of what they want in life and, and from their family and even down to tech they find useful and valuable but the big differences are priorities. How consumers spend, how public sectors spend nationalized health, private health, just to take a, a big example between the two.
0: That's fascinating because I think there's a lot to unpack there when you think about what that means in terms of the development of a tech ecosystem. You were building a firm in Europe, a fund of funds, well before many others were in the market. How did you approach doing that? And and maybe how did you think about that in the context of some of the things you just said? <laughs>
1: Uh, Well, it was a very difficult thing to do. We started in 2015, but of course, started thinking about it and researching it much earlier, kind of backing into it in a way. Lots of founders were building companies, lots of new VCs were forming. And I sort of discovered by accident, I was a weird character in the market. I'm a guy who's done tech early in my career. I have a computer engineering degree and, and ran IT departments for 10 years Then I got into investing, and what I discovered a little bit by accident is those who have done tech haven't really done investing, and most investors haven't really done anything in tech, so I kind of had a value to bridge that. It looks like a wonderful plan, and I'd love to present it like a wonderful plan, but it was really meeting a lot of people building new VCs and building new companies and getting excited about that opportunity, so excited after, like, two years of learning and being a friendly coach to new people that said, boy, if, if I don't do something about this, if I don't build an institutional investment play on this, I'll really regret it in the years to come because I developed a conviction that, boy, this is so exciting and returns will follow in the next 5, 10, 20 years. But it was very tough in those early days convincing investors to join this crazy new idea.
0: What were some of the hardest things to convince investors on at that point in time?
1: The biggest problem was if you looked in the rearview mirror at European venture returns in the prior decade, they were pretty bad. Not pretty bad. They were just bad, just plain bad. (laughs) And Europe's been through a few cycles with pockets of success, but kind of the index level. If you'd ask a, a big institutional LP to go to committee and they compared to non-existent benchmarks or whatever. It just wasn't uh, a compelling case. However, when I know, when you invest today, you're not investing for the past, you're investing for the future. And what we saw was really the seeds of greatness, which you could analyze in the fundamentals, the tech being built, the revenue streams being generated very quickly, the low cost to build a company and distribute digital products it was pretty new back then. It's pretty obvious today. If you're investing into that upward trend, that looked terrific. But building a case for LPs to demonstrate that was pretty difficult. And you needed to be pretty forward-looking and innovative to to invest at that point. And fortunately, we found enough great LPs who were.
0: Rewinding back to that time, based on your earlier comment, what made you so excited And so heavily convicted on European tech.
1: I started to hear stories that I'd never heard before. I'd I'd invested, I I worked at Cambridge Associates earlier and had made LP commitments into venture funds globally, mostly in the US, mostly names you you would know in the Valley and so on, a little bit in Europe, a little bit in Asia. So I had a kind of feeling about what good looks like. And I started to hear these stories in Europe that I hadn't really heard before. We founded a company six months ago. We used 50K of our own money. Now we have revenues and a bunch of customers six months later. And I thought, really? That might be a little more common today. But back then, so you bootstrapped so quickly with so little capital and how did you even find a customer, never mind a group of customers that are willing to pay even at this point? That kind of a few light bulb moments when I heard that story a few times. And I thought, if that's really the beginning of a trend, that's a very exciting investment lens. So I'm shortcutting two years of research, um, but it's sometimes the spark comes from a story like that that really makes you think, oh, okay. And complimented by people leaving some of the famous VC firms to start new firms, and their story being, I found some really interesting seed stage stuff that I can't do. And I'm so strongly convicted myself, I'm going to leave a big shop and do this. Okay, this warrants a little more looking.
0: You were at two large firms, Cambridge Associates and Pomona Capital. You were based in Europe, and you had some purview into the ecosystem. So you saw some of the evolutions of the ecosystem early on. What were some of the things that you saw from those early fund managers or firms you met with at those points in time as an LP or consultant that then made you think, okay, either those firms had developed or there were new types of VCs coming into the market that got you really excited about Europe?
1: Yeah, that's an important question. I think you could shortcut a big trend by saying it was the first time I saw in a large way. European VCs using U.S. tactics. (laughs) So what I mean is I think that venture capital was invested and raised to a high art in the U.S. And if you look at the 90s and 2000 venture in Europe, you saw a lot of bankers and consultants who went into venture more focused on balance sheets than on building product and operations. And what got me really excited was that all evaporated And this new guard, which really came in the post-financial crisis period, was built in the U.S. model. And either because they had worked in the U.S., they worked for a U.S. firm, or just because the world's hyper network now, and we're all reading the same blogs, we're all listening to you talk and learning. The people launching in Europe 10, 12 years ago were launching with a set of best practices and operating metrics and ambition and the whole thing that... Very, very similar to what you would have heard in California or Boston or New York. What I got excited about was if you take those methods and you apply them to this market, which has capital scarcity, which has lower valuations, but which has great tech and and good founders, that's a recipe for exciting returns. And that's been true. So now we have 12 years of success that you can draw a direct line, but the less clear
0: in the middle 2015. Let's fast forward to today. You mention a few things that make Europe attractive. You've now run Isomer for almost eight years. What's the case for Europe now?
1: The case for Europe now is, it's the same as the case for everywhere. Europe's tech ecosystem rebooted after the financial crisis. But what's common everywhere is software is eating the world. Software sc- scales super fast. The world is hyper-networked. Talent and capital are more mobile. So if you invest early with a diversifying strategy and you stay the course, there's some outsized returns available to you. And I was saying that back at the beginning of Isomer based on trends that would become true, whereas today you can say that and back it up with lots of data and benchmarks and lots of unicorns. But We were saying, if we're right, there would be lots of billion plus companies created Well, now they're there. (laughs) Many have exited and they've done really well. I used to make the case in every pitch. I don't so much anymore. It's a very different talk these days.
0: On that point, what's the tone of conversations with LPs today? What are you talking about today that you weren't talking about five, seven years ago?
1: Well, we've kind of been through a cycle already. Interestingly enough, the first talk was Hey, if you could see what I see in Europe, you'd like to invest. And then things started to grow. And then you were seeing on the front of the newspaper and in every tech press, growth, 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 growth. Every year was a record year. Amount of capital in, number of deals done. Like any KPI you looked at, it was up year after year after year after year, kind of peaking in 21 Valuations getting much higher. So we were having very different talks, which don't make the case for Europe, but make the case for how you're playing it. But that all changed really as markets declined, public markets declined, capital at least new commitments slowed down so greatly. Now we're seeing a lot of write downs and so on. So the story now is well, which of those fundamentals are true and should we still be investing or how much have you written things down? So those are the discussions we're having today. But I think that the long-term experience investors know that you must invest through these cycles. You can't market time. It's the newer investors who've entered in the last few years who've never seen a down cycle. So they're kind of not understanding how to think about this, how to interpret it. And of course, you see a lot of investors that came in high and go out low which (laughs) isn't the way to play any market.
0: It brings up a really interesting point because obviously when you started Isomer, to your point, the ecosystem hadn't yet been developed enough to have some exits. But a conference we were both at, Superventure in Berlin, one of your colleagues in the industry, Ross Morrison from Adam Street, he had a presentation that showed that European performance in VC from 2006 to 2022 relative to the U.S. and Asia, actually outperformed on a multiple basis. It was around 4.5x for Europe, 3.6x for the U.S., 2.2x for Asia, while the capital-weighted loss rate was lower than the U.S., a little higher than Asia, shows that there's really interesting risk-reward dynamics, and obviously that's through 22. So that means there was enough time for exits to happen. Does that prove to you in your mind that Europe is here to stay and that returns can actually be as good or better than other regions of the world that may seemingly, in LP's mind, be the places to invest?
1: Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I I was worried maybe 10 years ago on that question, would Europe develop a volume and diversity of activity that would be robust and self-supporting? Not worried about that at all anymore. (laughs) So really strong returns. And and what those returns do, do, the the effect of them is to inspire LPs, but equally importantly, maybe more importantly, it inspires more founders. The well-studied PayPal mafia effect, company exits, a bunch of founders make money, they go off to become repeat founders, angels, sometimes VCs, so that flywheel of venture capital is very much in effect, and and Ross's presentation is great every year, and it, it makes the case... It's what we know as investors. If you're putting your money where there's a lot of capital and prices are high, you'll probably tend to not do as well as where you're putting your money where there's capital scarcity and prices are low. I don't think there's a particular magic about those European returns being higher. If your entry point is one third to one half, then you don't need the exit to be as big, to develop a high multiple. And that's what gets me excited <laughs> to be investing today. Prices are prudent again. DD is prudent.
0: Is capital scarcity still a feature of the European market as we hear about the Andreessen's move into Europe? Obviously, the Axels have a presence. The the Bessemers, the IVPs, etc., have either large presence or people on the ground now. So is that capital scarcity still there or... Is it still reside in certain corners of the market relative to an ecosystem like the U.S.?
1: In my opinion, it it is very much still there. But it's interesting. It depends who you ask. If you ask a European who's lived in a system that's grown year on year, they say, gee, there's way too much capital here. How can we deploy all this capital? If you talk to an American, you say— You guys don't have any capital over there. What are you doing? (laughs) You need more growth funds. You need more. But my point of view is I believe capital is getting too prevalent when fundings are being done on a FOMO basis. There's 20 term sheets and they're bidding up the price. That's the bad effect of too much capital. But when funding rounds are being done in a more prudent way, really in discussion with the founding team, how much capital do you need to get to the next milestone for that 12 to 18-month runway on a growth plan, we can agree that's the right way of funding. And, and broadly, I still see that things didn't go as crazy here as they did in the U.S. I don't claim anything about the ecosystem that they're smarter people or whatever, they're more prudent or whatever. There just was a, always a capital scarcity. They grew up in that environment, and therefore there tends to be more of an operational focus in funding, especially at the earlier stages. Uh, but you're right a lot of the the american funds have come over and done deals i think we've seen them retreating a bit lately um i suspect because the core portfolio back in the us has been written down a lot and lps are saying hey why don't you shore that up before you explore five new countries
0: so that's a really interesting point we faced this when broadhaven investing in latin america five six years ago the question always was as an early stage investor well Who's going to be the growth capital that's going to follow that if you're an early investor? If that phenomenon, to some extent, is happening a bit in Europe, obviously at different size and scales, I think the European market, from a data perspective, shows that it's more mature than a market like Latin America or other markets of the world at this point. Is that a challenge now for the earlier stage funds in Europe who are trying to raise in these current vintages? with their LPs, or even with you as a fund of funds when you're asking questions to those VCs, okay, this is great that you're investing at early stage, but are you investing enough capital to where there's gonna be enough runway for these growth investors to come in? Have we reached that tipping point where there's really the point of no return, even if US capital, particularly at growth stage, retrenches?
1: I think there's two answers to that. One is the the kind of granular bottom-up answer, and one is the top-down systemic point of view. The granular bottom-up answer is when we have a great company in our portfolio that's growing strongly, that has a product customers love, and it needs funding, it's getting funding. <laughs> From my point of view as an investor, we, I, I don't see companies suffering even now as there's been a return to prudence and a re- retrenchment in some places. But if you have a great company, there's a lot of dry powder out there. So I don't worry about that. However, If you look at a systemic point of view and you read the various government reports and so on, they're all suggesting that, in in essence, the seed and early-stage funding has been addressed in every country across Europe, pretty much. There are lots and lots of funds providing that initial capital, and they all believe that if you watch that group of companies coming through the pipeline, that you you might have a problem. Depends what you think your failure rate is going to be, your loss rate, and so on, but There's a big push. There's some new funds been formed by government entities and so on to provide that later stage growth capital. And there's quite a bit of talk in Europe about, well, shouldn't the growth capital be local rather than giving all the good deals away to Sequoia? It's great that they're participating, but their investors are largely not here. So there is a little bit of a motivation to create new growth funds.
0: From that perspective, what has to change? Is that The LP side changing? We saw it recently with the FinTech Growth Fund in the UK, a billion pounds of capital, roughly, to invest into growth stage companies from a number of strategics based on the Khalifa report. Uh, You see French government getting involved. You see the EIF in many respects getting involved. What changes and what has to change in order for more local growth funds to be created? I think
1: simply we need some time and some success. I believe in minimal market tampering. (laughs) I believe the artificial creation of growth funds is a temporary solution and should be withdrawn as soon as possible, because any market tampering ultimately distorts the operation of free markets. So as a principle, I'm kind of against it. But as you just pointed out, lots of initiatives going, and we're very glad they do go. Governments... The EIF being Central European government-driven, but also most European governments have a local program like BPI in France, KFW in Germany. Those are terrific. They are focusing more on growth stage now. They're doing debt, venture debt style. They're doing growth capital. They're doing fund investing, stimulating the creation of new funds by being an LP in the same way they do an early stage. So I'm not too worried about it. I think for me... I'd rather see the development of the free market, which is happening, by returns being generated and institutions betting in this market because they see the returns. So once the weight of European pension money moves into this market, I think Atomico in their annual report sometimes calculate this statistic. If we simply put 0.5% of European pension money into this market, done. Problem solved. So I I do think there's a kind of pendulum there, a weight of movement. And there's capital here. That's not the issue. It's just those investors have a mission and they need to see the returns. Now you see that. You see a a good solid 10, 15 years of returns. And so personally, I'd rather the market takes a bit more time and develops organic solutions than we push too much on artificial solutions.
0: What do you see as being the shift that will enable the European pension community to start allocating in size and consistently to the ecosystem?
1: I think they need to give themselves permission (laughs) in a way. This is an area where pension funds in in countries are different. So there's one story about German pensions. There's a different one about UK pensions and a different one about French pensions again. But in general, they have underinvested in private markets broadly not only venture and growth, but buyout and other areas as well. That's a trend that's been moving for years. They're doing more and more all the time. There's a really nice recent example in the UK where a group of pension funds have signed something called the Mansion House Compact, which is a kind of statement of intent and an explanation that, hey, we are falling behind the best investors in the world in returns by not having more risk in the portfolio done properly, so I think um, pension managers themselves have to be given permission to go out, do a proper job of it. You you don't want to just jump in these markets. You want to do your research, create a, a strategy that makes sense, and do that over the long term. Because the worst thing for these markets is the boom and busts. We like it one year, so we dump a bunch of money, and we don't like it another year for whatever reason, so we don't invest. Of course, all all the great investors in the U.S. know that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Investing consistently over time has has been proven to work for decades. Well,
0: what you're saying is fascinating, particularly in a market that's still developing, which is that, in theory, perhaps fund of funds or co-investment platforms where you are maybe diversifying away a bit of returns, but in exchange for much lower risk because you have to build up a direct investment program to hire the right people, to institutionalize that yourself as an LP, that can be challenging. It still feels like there's very much an opportunity for really high quality fund of funds to be created in a market that's still developing.
1: Yeah, that's why we did it. A lot of our investors, their investments with us are their first step into European venture. Quite often their first step into venture at all. We build a a diverse portfolio It's kind of all weather. What I love about it is every day of the week, there's something really winning and growing fast. At the same time, there's something losing as well. But on a portfolio level, it's just been a consistent growth curve for years. And what LPs can do is put some capital there in a fund like ours or there are others and use that as a way of learning, getting comfortable with the market and double down on things you like. If you want to follow these companies, you can co-invest. If you want to follow funds, but that's always been a great way to get started. It's a big opportunity um, for Europe in general, but all those big groups, the pension funds that haven't done this before, they need an entry point. Sometimes I say, we've met 1,400 VC firms so that you don't have to. And we picked kind of 40 out of that group over time, and we're very happy to help you we love it. You have to love it to do that. But yeah, you're right. It's a way to get into the market, understand it in a safe way.
0: I think Europe has some really unique features relative to maybe a place like the U.S. Sure, the U.S. has regionally focused funds popping up. Obviously, you have seed funds in places like Austin, Or Salt Lake, which can find really interesting companies in these markets that maybe at early stages have been historically less trafficked by the Silicon Valley seed or Series A stage funds, but it's still all one country. It's more or less one regulatory regime. Whereas Europe has very different and distinct regionalization from the perspective of how companies are built, where they're built regulatory components, going from country to country, depending on the type of company it is. And that seems to impact the early stage ecosystem. How have you thought about that when it's come to building a portfolio of funds across Europe? Because as we both know, UiPath came from Romania, one of the biggest wins in Europe. Klarna came from Sweden. Those may not be the places that the VCs in London or Berlin or Paris may have gone to first. Now, sure they are. But how do you think about that as both an LP and as someone who thinks about the development of the ecosystem more broadly?
1: That's an important point. It is both a great strength and a, and a weakness and, and something to be managed. I believe the way you invest in Europe, by definition, has to be different than the way you invest in the US. This is a conversation we have with LPs all the time. There's not a super hub like Silicon Valley. There's London, which dominates and is the biggest, most important hub, but it's not the super hub that Silicon Valley is. Berlin is fantastic. Paris is really interesting. Stockholm is usually, we have a hundred cities with unicorn companies. So part of me thinks this is amazing. Where will the next thing be? It's the diversity of talent and ideas and innovation is just gorgeous. So that's really the prize to run for. But what scares me about it is, how do you find it when it's in Romania? Nobody was looking at Romania. They are now. <laughs> and that led us to the fund-to-fund strategy. Not so much, um, let's create a fund of funds as a soft entry point for LPs, but rather, how do I have eyes and ears in Eastern Europe, Northern Europe, Southern Europe, Western Europe? And by investing in a basket of funds who are local, usually geographically focused, sometimes sector focused as well, they're really the experts most likely to find the next big thing early. So you look at UiPath, there were three seed funds that did the very first round that made really outsized returns. And I'm pretty confident no one had heard of those funds at the time. Two of them are GPs of ours and the The third one is also a great, great firm. So that's really what we're trying to do is if if the first funding tends to be the local seed fund, let's invest in a basket of those. So our portfolio construction thinks about how do you somehow cover all of Europe? It's 44 jurisdictions. You're not going to invest in 44 funds. (laughs) You somehow need to build a very careful puzzle of, well, This fund is investing here, its home base is there, but it has a good coverage here and so on. That's a a lot of effort and and work. But that's really what we're trying to do, increase our probability to find the next big thing wherever it comes from. Then as it grows, to double down on it through co-investments and secondaries. Um, and, And then when you look at individual funds, what you see is some of them are local experts. Some of the story is, I see every deal in my market great fund in Paris that we've invested with. That's really them. And I have a great confidence they do see every great thing coming out of that ecosystem. But also you have other funds that are, well, we're experts in enterprise software. And that's not a local play. That's a pan-European play. I think it should be. Shame on you if you only do enterprise software in one country, and then you're blindsided by a great competitor coming out of the adjoining country. You really need to think pan-European. So we invest in a mix uh, funds that are doing, if you will, local market ownership versus sectoral ownership.
0: At early stages, and this is from my perspective, more anecdotal in conversation, but the local markets at pre-seed and seed tend to have local VCs winning. In Berlin, as an example, a cherry, just to give one example, wins a lot of deals in their local market versus a pan-European fund. And then at A, the Pan-European Fund is often the one coming in doing some of those deals. So you could say the same for Romania, for, for other parts of the, the ecosystem. Do you think that continues to stay the same or does that change?
1: I think that stays the same for the very foreseeable future. I'm very much a proponent that a stable of local experts is going to beat a couple of bets on pan Europe for exactly the reasons you described. Think about it. Put yourself in the shoes of the founder. You're a founder. You're two guys in a garage. You're trying to build a beautiful piece of tech. You're not a funding expert. You don't know about the venture landscape. You're two guys in the garage. And the way I always think about it, which is true more often than not, you the first day you need some money, you stick your head out of that garage, and who do you see? Well, it's for sure not the pan-European fund located in a different country. It's the local tech people that you look up to. They may be angels. They may be exited founders themselves. They're the first funders of record. The way you, you say it is they're winning deals. True, but they may also be actually winning because they're the preferred f- funder. They speak my language. They understand what I'm doing. They're here. They're coming into the garage, rolling up their sleeves, helping me build that first product. The pan European fund, or even more so the US fund, cannot help at that stage. They are needed at the next or two, three stages later, where you start to grow the company, you build multi country, then you really want that fund. But by then, your local fund, who invested in you already, They're helping you get that follow-on. If you study how companies are funded, it's nine times out of 10. It's very rare where a company starts in Spain and gets all of its money out of London. In fact, it goes even further. I know a lot of US VCs who will say, actually, I'll never invest in a company unless the local seed fund's invested. Because I want a partner who's nearby, who can, something goes wrong, who can run over there. They're helping me with eyes and ears that are local because I'm not. Unless you have that local validation as a company, you may never get the, the pan-European as well.
0: It brings up a bunch of really interesting questions when it comes to company construction and what success ends up looking like. In some of these other markets, you've invested in a number of these since you invest in earlier stage managers. There has been a thought in the past that in order to build a really big European successful tech company need to be able to ultimately expand to the U.S. Do you believe that that's still the case or can you just build a massive company in Europe and now there's enough proof points where that's the case?
1: I believe the answer to that question is a sector-based answer. So as with all my answers, I'm giving more nuance than just yes or no. If, if your company is in enterprise software, you probably do need to go to the U.S. That's where you're big customers probably are, that's where your big acquirers probably are, you want to have a plan to get over there. If by contrast, your company is a consumer focused play, that is giving something to the market that the European consumer wants, you can build a large company in Europe, and you may not want to go to the US. I mean, interesting example, DoorDash is one of the big winners in food delivery in the US. The equivalent in Europe is Deliveroo. And Deliveroo, Took a strategic choice early on not to go to the US because there were already a dozen companies competing really hard and highly funded. Whereas in Europe, there are fewer companies, they were less well funded. So, why go compete in an attractive big market, but where there's an awful lot of competition? Actually, they went eastward, they went to Asia, they went to the Middle East, and did extremely well. They built a big, successful company. In the local market, I I think about a a fintech. So Klarna has gone very large, but certain kinds of fintech really have to interact tightly with the local regulation Uh, in addition to the local demand and so on. They may not work at all in the US, but the market's so big in in their home market, they should stay there and double down and win that market. They can build a, a very big company. Gaming company, global in the first minute. If you're creating a game, you don't care. Where the player is, they can be global, you can distribute to them on an app store. So that's the extreme case, our cyber example.
0: How does that then form how VCs think about investing into founders? And I, I preface that by saying, it seemed, and this is again anecdotal from talking to European VCs, is that they are starting to see some founders with large global ambitions, but they still view on the whole, that there are less founders who have that in Europe than in the US. I think there's tremendous founders in Europe. And I don't necessarily always agree with the notion that you need to have that kind of ambition to build a really good company. I think slow and steady sometimes wins the race and being methodical, you can build a really strong business. And I think we're seeing that in the current market environment being so important. Do you find that to be the case though, that the ambitions may be different and therefore that impacts the way that VCs think about the types of founders they're backing in Europe?
1: I wouldn't ask the question, do you need to go to the US or do you want to conquer globally? The question I would ask is, what's the total addressable market for this product? The answer to that may be global or maybe local. But the point is, your ambition question is really, if this product works and dominates its market, how big can it be? <laughs> total addressable market point. We kind of control for this ambition point in our own investing. If you hear the story, well, I want to build this product and be the biggest company in my town, of course you wouldn't invest, or city, or even country. We don't even get involved with people unless they already have that ambition. And, And to be honest, most people we encounter do. I don't know whether the correct ambition is global. I think people say global just for fun. But what I'm really interested in is Where would this product, if it goes really big, what does that mean? (laughs) In this sector, in this type of product, with that target customer, and I think most of the VCs we work with, that's the way they're thinking. They're not necessarily saying, I'm not investing in anything unless it can address customers in Asia, uh, customers in the US. I think they're more coming from the angle of, what's the innovation here? It's a product innovation. It's a business model innovation. It's whatever. What's the innovation? And can I underwrite a growth curve that that gets really large? What does that look like? And can we share your vision? And if so, we'll invest. I think the lack of ambition point is a kind of old European stereotype. I'll tell you what, you just see the sky's the limit ambition for the founders we work with. And maybe that's also something about the newer generation. They've been inspired by the massive success they've seen, and they want to do that.
0: Does that also create a new generation of VCs from a mindset perspective?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They're modeling themselves on the the best VCs in the world, not the best VCs locally. They've all studied, and that's back to the origins of Isomer. I got excited because they've all read the blogs. They've studied the methods. They've seen the successes and understood the fun models deployed by the best, and that's what they're using. They're not iterating to a decent model, they're just studying the best and launching on that logic.
0: So on that point, what does best look like in Europe for VCs?
1: My argument to VCs is if you can't deliver 3X net, if you don't have a nice model to get to 3X net as a baseline, There are easier ways to make money. In terms of returns, we always want to unpack a model, stage of investment, average entry price, ownership, reserve ratios, exit assumptions, and realistic exit assumptions in the European context. Not, I'm going to have eight unicorns in my fund. Don't worry, it's going to be. No. Based on the average exit achieved in Europe, show us how you deliver. And small funds are doing 5 to 10x more often than one might think. That's really what we're looking for is that small, very early stage fund where you say 3x is the baseline, but all things going well, you could see at 5 to 10 if you hit a, the, the, a couple of unicorn outcomes because you're getting in early, you're getting in at low prices. So best to me is a, a strategy to really build it from the bottom up and then you get into well What's your thesis? Um, what are you offering founders? If money's a commodity, why is your money better than they? Why do they want you? How are you going to drive these returns? Everybody says I do value add. Okay. Can you demonstrate that?
0: What are the qualities that you see that cross-cut those fund managers who are doing 510x funds?
1: They plant a lot of seeds at low cost. They tend to plant quite a few. I do believe that going early, going at low cost and diversifying. And, and, and what you often hear is the one that really became the driver wasn't necessarily the one we thought at the beginning. <laughs> so diversity is needed because I don't think at that pre-seed seed stage, anybody, even the best, can tell that's the one. If you could, just invest in that one. But you need a diversity of company investments that each one could be the one I'm explaining the power law uh, in a different way, that there will be a couple of really big outlier outcomes. And it tends to be when you see those 5 to 10x funds that that's the case. They have one, two, or three really big outliers driving a a, a few to 2x fund level return. And then often they have a, a good book as well. We We have a few of those funds and they've just had a really special nose at the beginning of of meeting a founder and uh, call it the gut or the sommelier nose, just "Ah, something's really special here. I might not even know what, but I'm going to put a small ticket
0: and take a bet. How as an LP are you able to underwrite that? That's
1: the tough question, of course. You'd love to see an amazing five fun track record of them doing that. And then that's easy. Okay, just do it again. And there are a few like that. And it's wonderful to invest with them. But most of the time, Europe being a less mature ecosystem, sometimes there's an angel record that you can analyze. And people have done that. They've been founders themselves. And so they attract around them a deal flow. What we try to do is a kind of 360 due diligence where we talk to people that teams have worked with before, either people have invested in them or they've invested in or co-workers to really build up a picture. What are you going after? and What's the probability of success? How can we understand what you're doing and, and know that you have the skill to execute it and so on? That's very, very tough. We try to talk to everybody and then make a selection of the highest probability. But we back a lot of fun ones, a lot of fun twos, and there's a bit of science. Can we look through what you've done in your career to date to see that you could be really successful at this? But there's a lot of art as well. I get excited about the ambition, the, the logic, and sometimes the thesis that people have built. And why I love fun ones, by the way. They, they do tend to outperform despite the classical assignment of too much risk to them. But usually when you meet someone building a new firm, they've spent years thinking about it, which... Nobody does on fund three or four. You don't spend years agonizing over what's the perfect strategy for fund four. You just do it, do what you're doing a bit bigger. But what you see a lot in the fund one and twos is this um, amazing collection of data and boiling down of a thesis. And probably because they've been working on it for a while, they've already pre-worked on some deals. So you can sometimes get good portfolio visibility. That helps a lot. But anyway... There's no magic bullet. It's hard work to underwrite.
0: What advice would you give to people who are thinking about launching a fun one and trying to have success fundraising from not just maybe individuals or family offices, but institutions like Isomer?
1: I think the right question for everyone to ask themselves, uh, why does the world need another fund? And and if, if the answer to that is, I just want to run a fund, I caution people to... To reconsider, or join another fund. But if the answer is, there's a kind of founder that is not well supported in the market that I can support, or I have an angle on some highly generative area, or um, then there might be a thesis that can be highly productive, but also can get others excited. And if you can illustrate that opportunity set, why you're qualified to go after it, you can bring along investors. And Attracting institutions is always hard, particularly on those first funds. So there's not too many repeat offenders in Europe who are backing first-time funds. We're one of them, and we tend to know the others because we do this stuff together. But usually in the early days, it's friends and family who back you. It's people you've worked with before. A lot of funds helped out by angels and a lot of family offices who can take that early risk with their own money. So I recommend honing your strategy a bit on friendly ears and hone your pitch. Take it out on the road. Try it out. Don't go on day one to the main institution you're targeting. We try to be that friendly ear to lots of people. That's one of the most fun things. We have to limit the amount of time we can spend on that because it's a new fund every day. But trying to spar with people and say, well, why do you think that's true? And why do you think this thesis will work? And is there any proof points you can show. And if the answer is yes, then you see people start to construct a strong case. Sometimes we get so excited about it, we need to invest.
0: You mentioned that low valuations, particularly at pre-seed seed, have tended to be a feature of the European market and have made it very attractive, particularly for some of these small funds. Now, one thing you said has kind of been stewing around in my mind, which is that there's this now quote-unquote mafia of second-time founders who came from great tech companies, Spotify, Klarna, SoRare, et cetera, et cetera. Do they command higher valuations as they spin out? And if so, does that change the dynamics of the European ecosystem?
1: Well, for sure, they claim higher valuation. Hey, I just exited and made a ton of money. I'm going to do it again. And there's a group of VCs around going, whatever you're doing next, I want to be there. (laughs) So yeah, of course. Is that affecting the market? Not so much, because I think for every exited founder who thinks about founding a new company, there's another one who also thinks about being an angel and then becoming a VC. There's another one who joins a big growthy startup, somebody who's really good at the growth hacking side or the operations, but doesn't necessarily want to found again, but they'll join. So that talent base is getting better and better. so I don't think that's affecting the market. It's affecting broadly because the talent is just getting stronger and stronger. But that founder thing that you describe of the great founder who repeats and commands a high price, of course, that happens everywhere. But I don't see that being the dominance, not like nine out of 10 companies are that. <laughs> Maybe one out of 100 is that. And yeah, you see I call PowerPoint investing. Somebody puts five slides together and VC gives them money just because they have such confidence in the founder. And often those things go on to be really good. So that's not wrong.
0: So in your mind, this market over time changes, but there's still so much in terms of opportunities of great companies relative to the available capital that this is still a market that will be attractive from early stage investing perspective for pre-seed and seed funds, and then obviously the fund of funds or institutional LPs or or otherwise who support them?
1: Well, absolutely. I'm as excited as ever. In, In fact, it's a little more robust now than it was when we started. It's a little more mature. In a way, you could argue an even better time than when we first started. I'm really happy that we've had a market correction because I think high prices are bad for us all, ultimately. They look fun in the early stages, but actually they sometimes damaged companies, they damage returns and so on. Think about Europe. It's, it's 44 jurisdictions. There's about 35,000 companies founded and funded for the first time. Massive feedstock, if you will, for the venture capital ecosystem. So there's an awful long way to grow to be anything like as ma- mature as the U.S. we got some other problems to confront. You highlighted growth equity being an area maybe we need to do more on The secondary market, liquidity, is a big area where there isn't much in Europe at all. All the governments who've put money in this market, they've really focused on primary injection of capital. But a a functional capital market requires liquidity at different stages, which enables more investment as well. So that's an area we're working on. We'll do more over time. But there's Um, Venture debt, for example, less available in Europe than in the US, it's growing, more firms are launching, but you see the maturation of the system. And that's a wonderful uh, thing to invest into, because you're not getting the competition that drives high prices yet. I think it'll come and, and deal access will get harder and harder over time. If you study what happened in the US over the last decades, that will all happen, but it's large part, it's not there yet. So it's a very interesting system to invest in.
0: You mentioned the secondary opportunity. I want to cover that a bit as well. Do you think that the European unicorns in many cases will fulfill their promise? Is this an opportunity in your mind where a lot of great companies are mispriced because the market's changed? Or are there a lot of overvalued companies because they were just valued too highly and they'll never grow into the the promise that that those thought that they would.
1: Yes to all of that. So there are a number of overvalued companies, in my opinion, that won't grow in. And so as with anything, buyer beware, don't buy in at last round price. Whenever we look at a secondary, unlike secondaries in the private equity world, when you look at a venture secondary, we don't really think about the discount. We think about what could this company or this basket of companies in the fund, what could they exit at? And if we discount that back by our target return, we get what we'd be willing to pay. And then, only then, do we compare it to what it's valued at today. And if the discount to what it's valued at today, if that's a palatable discount to the seller, we have a deal. If it's not, we don't. And I think that's the right way around. But what I'm seeing is just a big need for liquidity on the LP side, on the founder side, early investors that's a general need, whereas the companies that have been wildly overvalued and people looking to get out while they're high and, and do a quick flip, that happens, of course. That's normal, but it's pretty small in the context of the bigger market. Um, what's interesting to me is you, you saw lots of what I'd call tourist investors entering the market as it went up 2019, 20, 2020, 2021. Lots of investors of all stripes coming in. And then the market went down and they said, oh, they didn't think it would ever go down. And now they're thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't be in Europe or maybe we shouldn't be in early stage or whatever. And they're looking to sell. And so there's some really beautiful gold nuggets. If you can figure out the asset and understand what you're buying, then there's a very win-win deal to be struck with people who don't want to stay the course or can't stay the course. And that's a big opportunity set. If you just think about it, we've had 12 years of money in and NAV growth with very little liquidity. (laughs) So there's a massive stock of assets there. Even if a couple of percent trade, it's a three to five billion a year opportunity set.
0: Interesting. On that point, what would you say is probably the most surprising thing or interesting thing about the European ecosystem that people don't yet know?
1: (laughs) I think you hit it already, actually. The thing that really shocks people is whenever we look at the Cambridge Associates fund returns benchmarks, and you observe that the European venture market has outperformed the US market in three, five, 10, 15 year intervals, that kind of shocks people because it's quite against conventional wisdom. You can unpack the data set and you can <laughs> there's all issues with that, but the trend is there. And, and that's really surprising because I think a lot of LPs I meet, particularly US LPs, they kind of wrote Europe off a long, long time ago. And, OK, we do venture, but only in the US. We do a bit of a China, never in Europe. And when you show that data point, which you mentioned, there's a couple ways to cut it. But the, the result is always the same. People go, really? Re- really? You see the look in their eye. Hmm, okay, maybe we'll have a look at that. And that's caused a lot more interest in Europe. You got to unpack it. It's a complex landscape and you have to look what's behind it and how you can construct a strategy to pursue it. But I think if, from my point of view, if I were building a new portfolio today, if you're not considering Europe part of your venture growth allocation, you're really missing something.
0: Great advice to allocators. Now, flipping to the other side of this, given that you're thinking about Europe day in and day out and probably at night while you're sleeping. What is the thing that worries you most about the European ecosystem going forward as an allocator to the ecosystem?
1: What worries me most is probably the the potential for the boom-bust nature of the cycle. I think the hype cycle damages us all. And... (sighs) Europe's had a couple of those in the 90s and the 2000s. When companies are being valued very highly and overfunded, it looks really exciting and it creates lots of great press, newspaper headings and all that. But ultimately, that's damaging to us all because when things come down and gravity does take effect and they come down, you get a big group of investors who go, aha, look, there's the evidence that this never really worked. That sets us back, whereas what I like and I think what the European ecosystem needs is a very long, stable period of growth. <laughs> and what's also nice to see is that in the way that the U.S. had a really high valuations that drove really high returns, it, it had also then big markdowns. And what you saw in Europe is not so much hype, not so much markdown. Some of our own American LPs are telling us we took a 20, 30% haircut in our venture book. In Europe we sort of five to eight percent. I think that's partly because the hype cycle is less and therefore the right sizing is less, which is healthy. To me, the funding of companies in line with what they operationally need is where you want to live, not the funding of companies based on um, capital supply and FOMO and the number of (laughs) term sheets on the table. To be honest, day to day, I'm not really worried about it. but, But it's a bigger picture thing, which is why I also think that back to the market tampering idea, I don't think the solution is create lots of big funds and dump money. I think the solution is time and prudent growth and hard work. And all the fundamentals are there. The landscape's beautiful. The talent is great. The road has been paved. I'm a proponent of just stepping step by step and being careful, being prudent. That's working really, really well.
0: And interestingly, Europe is a good place to live as well. I've seen it anecdotally with some very good friends from the U.S. going and joining European startups. How does that impact things as well? And do you see more talent migrating from other parts of the world? to Europe, because it's a great place to not just work, but live as well.
1: Yeah, that's a big trend. With the success of the ecosystem comes the ability to attract talent. And of course, companies and funds, they all use every trick they've got. One of them is, hey, we're going to set up a development team in Portugal, where the, the sun is shining, and the cost of living is low, and the tax rate is good. And wouldn't you love to live there? You see a lot of, even within Europe, people migrating to different places because of the standard of living, which becomes a way of attracting talent. That's also true about pulling people out of traditional industries. So once your company grows to a certain size... Because now the system has been so successful, you can pull people out of big companies that have domain expertise. That wasn't necessarily true 15, 20 years ago. Maybe someone wasn't going to leave Visa or BMW or name your big company. Well, they really will now. And then the third trend you can spot is people migrating from other places. Americans, as you say, what I see quite often is Europeans who went to the U.S., Maybe they went to university and stayed, did a startup, they come back. Not surprisingly, their family's here, their home base remains somewhere in Europe. But now that, again, they wouldn't have thought to come back, I've heard that a hundred (laughs) times. Well, I never thought I'd move back, but actually, I'm going to found my company in Berlin, or I'm going to found it in Paris or join one, as you say. So that's all part of the pulling of great talent, which success begets that (laughs) continued success in attracting the seasoned executives that you need in those later stages of growth.
0: What advice would you give to LPs and allocators who are looking at Europe?
1: Oh, well, my advice has to be put some money with Isomer and use that as a platform for growth. (laughs) That's my totally self-interested advice. But my advice would be, if you're going to approach Europe, you should understand that the tech trends are quite the same and the way companies are built and the fundamentals of VC are the same, but the landscape you're investing into is very different. And so please don't apply your U.S. VC strategy to Europe. Really take a bit of time to understand how that landscape's different and adapt and get some knowledge either by investing with firms that certainly our firm is one of those that's very open and shares its knowledge. A lot of USLPs, for example, they invest with US VCs that set up shop in Europe and they learn through that lens. But you know, I think it does warrant taking some time to understand. And you can do that over a long period of time by just... Looking at your own portfolio, you can do that over a short period of time by coming to Europe and dedicating some shoe leather to really meet people. The exciting part of the ecosystem is not just make a stop in London, make a stop in Berlin and you're done. But actually, there's quite a few cities with really vibrant markets, and it's worth a bit of time to understand that and form a strategy. And normal rules apply. Those places where capital is less competitive Pricing is better, but building tech companies is very good. So, no surprise, really good returns. Uh, I'll give you a real example. At the beginning of Isomer, people would ask, Well, what about Spain, for example? Well, what are you going to allocate there? And my answer was, Well, we don't see Spain as very attractive. I've revised that opinion strongly. We've done a lot in Spain, and there's some beautiful outcomes. and. Beautiful fund managers, some terrific companies. You have to keep your eyes open and keep reviewing. Find the diamonds that are dotted all over Europe.
0: What's the market that you're most excited about that people may not expect to be the answer to that?
1: I just gave the Spanish example. I think Eastern Europe is very exciting. We've been investing there a long time. You gave the example of UiPath. Eastern Europe has ambitious people that are highly educated Um and have a lot of really strong technical underpinning. So I think the, the stock of talent is fantastic. The capital remains pretty scarce there. So you just have a, a, a wonderful moment. It's not easy. There, You have to do your work and go figure it out. And there are many countries that make up Eastern Europe. So it's, it's again, not a question of I'll visit one city or two, and I understand that market. But I do think there are big prizes there for those who can unpack it. Nordic market, that's not a surprise. Um, Nordic market is beautiful. Everybody knows it. (laughs) Everybody's looking for the next Klarna, Spotify, um, gaming company, and so on. Um, I think France is a really interesting market, but difficult to play for outsiders. you got to do some work. But again, so rare. You mentioned so rare. So rare is in our portfolio many times. Amazing company, just very remarkable. And I can't wait to see where it goes next. But you don't find so rare early unless you're somehow in that French ecosystem. Oh, if I can just, I, I can go on all day. That's my problem. But Switzerland. Switzerland. Switzerland punches far, far above its weight in the crypto Web3 space. Ethereum invented in Switzerland. <laughs> Nobody probably thinks about that. But there again, how to play it, how to study it. It's not easy. It's not quick. But there's a lot to love. I can go market by market, which is my job and my passion. But yeah, I think all of those are interesting and attractive markets
0: to, to pursue. Related to this, and a final question I always ask guests on Alco's mainstream, which is, What is your most interesting or favorite alternative investment?
1: I don't like the definition alternative because alternative was like, it means not the main thing. So my favorite alternative investment is venture capital. I don't see it as an alternative, but I get excited about a real innovation. Not a way to get you your pizza 10 minutes quicker, but something that changes life for people. So I I will end on an optimistic note and say I think the world has uh, a major climate problem, but I'm really optimistic that technology can bring a lot of new solutions we haven't even thought of yet. So I get excited about can I use capital to drive real innovation, which can solve the world's problems, which certainly can be fun to play a game or get your pizza 10 minutes quicker. But when I really think about what the power of venture does, we're diagnosing diseases better, creating more focused treatments in the medical world where I hope we will solve various parts of the climate problem through core tech. I get excited out of making lots of money that comes from doing a good job. But I really get excited from original optimism of changing the world. That's why I've dedicated my, my whole life to it. I'll talk to you until you're blue in the face, anybody who likes to.
0: <laughs> well, on that point, you've invested in a number of really high quality managers. We both know in that space, the climate solution space, who I think hopefully should end up proving you right, both in terms of investing in things that are incredibly impactful and also generate great returns to the point where to tie this into what you just said about, you don't like the word alternative. You'd rather it be in the mainstream. I think the hope for all of us is that one, something like climate, so critical to the sustainability of the world, of our economies, nation states, uh, geopolitical forces, ends up going from the alternative into the mainstream. And I think it's also a trend that, I'm hearing often, not just from you, but from many in the space, whether they're LPs or GPs, which is that alternatives are no longer alternative. They are thought of as part of an investor's allocation. So it's not, this is the alts bucket, but this is equities. You can do that public markets, private markets, private credit just becomes a credit allocation, whether it's publicly traded credit or private credit funds. And that mindset shift ends up being so important. So what you're getting at, I think, is a really important theme and trend, which is that you're trying to help people access the innovation economy. That's done, in your mind, through venture.
1: Exactly. I I think it's pretty clear that big companies are very good at incremental innovation, making products better over time. But all the really radical innovations come from a small group of people with a crazy idea. You can now look to the top of the S&P 500 to see the result of that. Um, but it always starts there. So, so to me, there's a whole segment of economic activity represented by innovation. And the only way to access it is what used to be alternative, but it has really gone
0: mainstream. That's a brilliant way to end this podcast that is called Alt Goes Mainstream. So thank you for echoing <laughs> the whole theme of of what we're trying to accomplish here and for a tremendous window into why the European ecosystem is so exciting. You're leading the way. Thanks so much, Joe, for coming on the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast.
1: Well, thanks for doing what you do, Michael, and and for letting me be a part of it.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about Alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at at Michael and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day.
1: We're going-